This is an Ecodharma audio podcast of a talk from Buddhafield's Green Earth Awakening in 2016. It's the first in a two-talk series on collaboration, and it's called Transformative Collaboration, The Matrix of Bodhicitta. It's delivered by me, Gukhyapati, from the Ecodharma Collective. And for more about our work, check out www.ecodharma.com. So, so yeah. So, transformative collaboration is um, is a kind of it's a phrase. It's a, a term that we use a lot on the courses that we're running uh, in the centre uh, where I live <coughs> in Catalonia, called the Ecodharma Centre. Uh, we actually run a specific course called transformative collaboration, and we've evolved that course because um, it's become increasingly clear to many of us that uh, addressing the kinds of challenges that we face, uh, both in terms of you know, ecological um, issues, uh, many of the social, economic uh, difficulties that we're facing, that harnessing the power of collaboration is really crucial to uh, our capacity to, to resolve those things. You know, if we look at the kind of growing tendencies right now, um, well, I don't know if they're growing tendencies, but at least the way in which these tendencies are, are, are currently surfacing in our society towards uh, fragmentation, xenophobia, the kind of rise of the far right currently all across Europe, uh, even to the extent of kind of you know gaining parli- you know parliamentary gains, you know sort of winning elections in, in various countries, um, we can see that that this you know in, in a sense one of the things that's happening is there's a there's a ripening of um, social and historical conditions towards fragmentation taking place at the moment. We've lived through uh, a very uh, damaging uh, few decades during which neoliberalism particularly has eroded our community. It's, uh, it's been a, uh, a, a cause of greater atomization and social alienation. And the only way we're going to address those things, you know, when we ask, you know, how do we address them, people come up with all sorts of, the people we work with come up with all sorts of strategies, all, all sorts of plans, all kinds of different pathways, you know, towards um, affecting positive change in the world at the moment. But underneath all of those, there's one really simple, basic answer to the question, how are we going to fix this? And the, the answer is, together. You know, unless we are able to do this together, there's no way forwards. And yet doing it together isn't an easy thing. It sort of sounds like a platitude, doesn't it? You know, it's kind of a cliche. Um, it's like it's such a kind of common thing for us to be, to be trying to talk about. And yet we find it very, very difficult to achieve. And we find it difficult to achieve because we don't always have the capacity. Many of us haven't kind of you know, been educated or socialised into ways of working effectively together. In fact, we've been socialised in ways that pull us apart. And not only is there this psychological um, challenge that we carry within ourselves, but also for us to come together, to work together, we're also working against um, strong socio-economic tendencies that preference and seem to reward individualism. They reward us uh, looking for strategies to deal with basic securities in our lives in more individualistic ways. So, 
So yeah, this talk is, is exploring uh, collaboration and um, the importance of harnessing the power of collaboration. And I'm going to start by relating that to Buddhism. You know, this, this gathering sort of comes out of um, the work of the, the Buddhafield Collective and uh, the Dharma is really at the heart of, of this initiative. And in fact, the work that we do around transformative collaboration and trainings in collaboration also grow out of uh, Dharma-based methodologies. You know, Buddhism has an awful lot to offer in terms of tools and approaches and values that can really support uh, effective collaboration. Unfortunately, however, a lot of religion has um, quite a lot to um, answer for. To the extent that religions um, can emphasize uh, what we might call a cosmological dualism or uh, emphasize ideas of uh, kind of individual or personal salvation uh, they they lead to an indifference um, towards the integrity of ecological and social systems that we live within and uh, many religions do have, sort of at their heart, this kind of cosmological dualism. A lot of religions kind of offer you know, us some kind of personal salvation. And Buddhism has done that as well. You know, Buddhism, to the extent that early Buddhism talks about um, nirvana, or sort of escape to nirvana, liberation somewhere else, to the extent that it talks about individual liberation in that way, it compounds the sort of cosmological dualism, you know, somewhere else, reality, um, where you know we live in this deluded illusion, sort of you know this fallen state, effectively, um, and this idea that we can we can find that liberation for ourselves. But to the extent that um, our take on Buddhism uh, mm, remains within that kind of framework we can't really practice Buddhism effectively. Because in a way, those are, you know, although there are places in the tradition where we find that kind of idea articulated, as the tradition evolved, uh, it was sort of recognized that that articulation wasn't sufficient to really support the kind of radical transformation that Buddhism is offering us. So the way that traditionally, historically, that was resolved was in the Mahayana. So Mahayana Buddhism arises some hundred years after the, the Buddha. And it seeks to do two things. It seeks to uh, philosophize the non-duality of things. Um, and so, you know, challenges this idea of this sort of cosmological dualism. So it philosophizes the non-duality of samsara and nirvana. And it also undercuts um, the false refuge, the false ideal of personal liberation by placing right at the heart of Buddhist practice the, the altruistic uh, aspiration of the Bodhisattva. So I'm not sure how many of you know how much you know about these kind of these words, you know, Mahayana, Bodhisattva, maybe these are sort of common parts of your vocabulary. I'll unpack them a little bit. So Mahayana is a, is a term that uh, contrasts itself with what's called, what, what the Mahayana called the Hinayana. Um, yana is vehicle, Maha is great, and Hina is, is small or lesser. 
So the, the Mahayana is the great vehicle because it's a, it's a vehicle, it's a path, maybe we could say, um, to, to, to carry all beings towards liberation. Whereas the Hinayana is a vehicle that the Mahayana presents as you know, offering this ideal of, of individual salvation. So it's a smaller vehicle which carries individuals right, rather than all sentient beings. The Mahayana um, changes the, the, uh, the way of framing the goal of Dharma practice. No longer is it um, presented as personal salvation, but it's, it's embodied in the idea of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is um, someone who uh, practices um, for the benefit of all beings. And their goal isn't personal liberation, but it's an increasing capacity to support all beings towards liberation. It's a very, very beautiful ideal. And it's an ideal that integrates um, a deep, compassionate solidarity with all beings, with the wisdom that we're not truly separate from them. So I'm going to read you a few, a couple of passages um, from some uh, some sort of classic Mahayana Buddhist texts to kind of you know un, un, to get a bit of a feel of what this uh, you know the Bodhisattva ideal is kind of pointing us towards. So the first one I'm going to read is uh, from the Bodhicaryavatara, which was written in the eighth century by um, uh, an individual known as uh, Shantideva. So Shantideva at that time was living in the Buddhist University of Nalanda and um, he was actually uh, rather looked down upon by many of the other many other monks and scholars who were there at the time because he seemed to be a very lazy individual you know they saw him always sleeping all day long and you know and um, and they thought they'd play a little trick on him. They thought they'd, they'd expose his laziness by inviting him to um, give a lecture to the assembled um, monks and scholars. And uh, so they set up this podium and they, you know, everyone gathered and they were all ready for a good laugh when Shantideva was unable to communicate anything of real value. Um, but what happened was, uh, in fact, Shantideva uh, gave this talk that is now now recorded, you know, in, in terms of legend and, and so on. It's recorded as this this um, the Bodhicaryavatara, this 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 text. This very beautiful poem and philosophical text that has become a real classic of religious world religious literature. And uh, not only did he deliver this extraordinary um, sort of this extraordinary talk, when he got to the chapter about. Uh, Pranyaparamitara, the perfection of wisdom, uh, Shantideva levitated off the stage, <laughs> rose up into the air and um, sort of demonstrated in fact that whilst they might have thought he was a lazy bugger, in fact he'd been practicing in secret at night and was a very, very ardent kind of practitioner and he didn't care what people thought about him. I mean, let's face it, reputation is such a fickle thing, isn't it really? What's important is we get of our practice, who cares? other people think about it really. So anyway, so so Shantideva, um, this is a couple a few verses for, from that from the Bodhicharavatara, which express the aspiration of the Bodhisattva. So he says, For all beings suffering in the world, may I be the medicine 
May I be the doctor and the cure until their sickness has been healed. May I avert the pain of hunger and thirst with abundance of food and drink. For those living in scarcity and famine, may I become their sustenance. May my own body and all that I possess, my past, present and future virtues, I dedicate them all, withholding nothing for the benefit of beings. Abandoning everything, I am liberated. Since everything must be finally given up, better that I give it to all other beings. May I be a protector, a guide for all who journey on the road. May I become a boat, a raft or a bridge for those who long to reach the other shore. May I be a light for those in need of light. May I be a bed for those in need of rest. May I be a servant for those in need of service. And those who falsely accuse me and others who would do me harm, and others still who would degrade me, may they all share in awakening. Like the earth and the other great elements, like space itself, may I remain to support the lives of boundless beings by providing all that they might need. In my mind now is born the bodhicitta. This is the inexhaustible treasure. This is the supreme medicine. So, this, you know, it's a really extraordinary reframing of a kind of spiritual ideal. And there's no, there's no self-preoccupation here in terms of you know, finding one's own salvation and freedom. There's a complete reorientation towards, towards other. And a discovery that in that reorientation, there lies sort of deep liberation. So it's not about self-sacrifice either, because in fact, in bringing about, in this aspiring towards this, this ideal to support others, there's, there's this liberation within that for oneself. So that really expresses this kind of, you know, the compassionate, the, the aspiration of compassion of the, Bodhi, of the Bodhisattva. Um, but a little bit more in this, this next verse, um, I think goes further in expressing the non-dual nature of the goal as articulated in Mahayana Buddhism. Um, this is called the Bodhicitta Vivarana and it's uh, attributed to Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna is historically associated with the, um, the Madhyamaka school of philosophy. And uh, he's very closely associated with the Pranaparamita literature as well. So, in fact, in his, he uh, he's also um, he's also um, associated with the Nalanda University. And there's a lovely story about him in Nalanda. So, unlike Shantideva, uh, Nagarjuna was a highly regarded scholar, highly regarded philosopher, and. Um, you know, seen as perhaps the, 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 the person in Nalanda that at, at that time who had the greatest understanding of Buddhist wisdom, of what the Buddha was trying to communicate. 
But one day, um, Nagarjuna was in a situation a bit like Shanti Devi, you know, talking to talking to everybody in, in the university at the time. And uh, there arrived uh, right at the back of the room uh, this young a young woman, uh, about sixteen years old, and uh, she began to ask questions. And Nagarjuna was trying to answer these questions, and but he was unable to like fully satisfy the questions that were being prompted by this young 16-year-old woman. So uh, he followed her out of the monastery, uh, as often happens in, in a lot of, you know, Buddhist sort of, you know, the, the, the biographies of many Buddhist teachers, you know, their realization happens when they leave the monastery, right? So he follows her out of the monastery, out through the forests and so on, till eventually they come, she comes to a lake and she dives into the lake, and Nagarjuna dives into the lake as well. So, you know, beautiful kind of symbolism about entering water and sort of, you know, going down into the deep, deep sort of unconscious, as it were. And at the bottom of the lake, um, there's the palace of the Nagas, the, the water dragons. And she's a princess. She's a water dragon princess. And uh, down in this palace, uh, he dis he, they, they present him with the Pranyaparamita literature, which are the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the perfection of wisdom sutras, saying to him that um, when uh, Shakyamuni was teaching, uh, humanity at that stage wasn't ready for these sort of deeper teachings. And now Nagarjuna were, had sort of arrived, they, they presented these teachings that he then brought back and began to expound. And out of that arose the, the Majamaka philosophy. However, this text attributed to Nagarjuna isn't actually by that Nagarjuna, right? His, his, you know, for, for throughout Buddhist history it's been attributed to him, but modern scholarship suggests that actually there's like two, maybe three Nagarjunas who are conflated together, which is one of the reasons the tradition also suggests that Nagarjuna was a great alchemist who lived for 700 years. Hmm. Actually, they're different people. Nevertheless, you know, this really captures uh, an important aspect of the non-dual nature of the, of, the, of the goal articulated by the Mahayana. So here, whichever Nagarjuna it is, says, uh, The Bodhisattvas are active in developing enlightenment, which has steadfast compassion as its root, grows from the sprout of Bodhicitta, and has the benefit of others as its sole fruit. Wishing to protect living beings, the bodhisattvas take rebirth in the mud of existence. Unsullied by its events, they are like a lotus rooted in the mire. Though they have consumed the fuel of defilements through the cognitive fire of emptiness, the waters of compassion still flow within them. They do not abide in either nirvana or samsara. Therefore, the Buddhas have spoken of this as non-abiding nirvana. So verse by verse, right, the first one, you know, what's really, really important here is, you know, the, the, um, the root of enlightenment is this steadfast compassion. Right? And the sole fruit of developing the enlightened mind is the benefit of others. Yeah, so this kind of re-articulates what Shanti Davis says, the sole benefit. Yeah. And then this, the next line is, you know, the bodhisattvas, they, they take birth, they take rebirth in the mud of existence. And um, this image of them 
however, been kind of unsolid. You know, the, this sort of classic Buddhist image, isn't it, of the lotus sort of rising, it's rooted in, in the mud, but it rises up out of the water uh, where it opens. But really importantly, it's not floating in some celestial space. Right? It's, not, it's not in some sort of quasi-metaphysical other place. It's rooted in the mud. That's where the enlightened mind, the compassion activity, draws its nourishment from the mud at the bottom of the lake, the sludge, the kind of, you know, you know that kind of mud that when you do a bit of kind of, you know, I don't know if you've dredged anything, but when you do it sort of comes up, it stinks. It's like the most putrid, horrible, smelly stuff, right? Stuff in the bottom of the canals and so on. You know, it's like the roots are kind of right down there, right? So very, very important, that aspect of the image. And it says, the defilement, so they're grasping, their attachment, um, have been um, sort of cut through, burnt up, by consumed by the cognitive fire of emptiness. But that burning up doesn't lead to a, a, a vacuous space. What happens there is the, the water of compassion flows into that space. It's like the cognitive fire of emptiness isn't again about a kind of a negation. It's actually about opening space up for a, a, a sort of a plenitude of spontaneous compassion activity. And then the last one is um, they don't abide in either nirvana or samsara. And this idea of a non-abiding nirvana. So there's a really, really important kind of notion in, in the Mahayana, the non-abiding nirvana. It's like the, the bodhisattva, because of their realization, their compassion, their union, the, the union of sort of emptiness and compassion um, in the bodhisattva, there's no need to escape samsara because the bodhisattva is not affected by you know, the conditioning of greed and hatred and delusion. There's no need to escape to, to nirvana, to escape from samsara. In fact, you know, it's a completely reconfigured kind of uh, sense of the goal. So that in fact the bodhisattva finds their liberation amidst the world, right, right in this world, not somewhere else even though their experience of this world is quite different to ours. So at the heart of these different conceptions, these new framings of, of the liberation goal of, of um, the Mahayana goal, uh, is this idea of bodhicitta, which I've mentioned a couple of times. It's come up in both of these verses. And um, Bodhicitta is often translated as uh, the will to enlightenment or the thought of enlightenment. Um, it has a very central, a central part. It's kind of the bodhicitta um, is what defines the bodhisattva. The arising of the bodhicitta and the life of the bodhisattva is what defines the bodhisattva. And it has two aspects. So the first aspect of the bodhicitta is the aspirational aspect. Um, the kind of relative dimension, you might say, as well. So this is, uh, this is where, according to the Mahayana, this is where the spiritual life begins, when we aspire to unfolding wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings. It's that aspiration, that that's what we're committing ourselves to. And until we do that, in a way, the Mahayana would say, well, you know, we're not on the path to full and perfect enlightenment yet. We haven't really started even. And often, you know, traditionally this is, um, mm, we see this in people taking bodhisattva vows, for example. 
So the aspirational dimension. But there's a second dimension of bodhicitta, which is the um, the kind of the actual or the absolute bodhicitta. And this has a very interesting a very interesting sort of place in in uh, Buddhist literature and Buddhist thinking. Um, it's um, in a way you could say that the absolute bodhicitta is the way in which the wisdom and the qualities of the Buddhas manifest in the world, the way they the, the way they play out in the world. It's um, sometimes it's almost talking talked of as though it's just kind of a, a sort of a cosmic energy sort of erupting into the world. Mm-hmm. But it's really important to get that as if. Because, you know, if we're not careful then we sort of start importing sort of eternalistic sort of notions um, into Buddhism. So it's as if there's this sort of erupting of this sort of cosmic energy into the world. But really, well, we can see that much more simply in terms of the way that wisdom and compassion manifests amongst us and between us. So there's the bodhicitta. And the arising of that aspirationally, and then the work to try to become a vessel so that the absolute bodhicitta, in a way, can sort of, you know, arise um, within us, you know, so that we can be of great benefit. Interestingly, though, there's often, um, well, there are ways in which this bodhisattva ideal and this idea of bodhicitta uh, get reappropriated to ourselves. Um, it's like when we start thinking about it as something that kind of, you know, ari- arises within us, you know, you get this idea that, so, you know, I'm going to be a bodhisattva, you know, I'm, I aspire to be a bodhisattva, I'm going to, I'm going to give rise to the bodhicitta. And you can kind of perversely end up with a bit of a sort of self-aggrandizing kind of approach here, right? Um, you know, the very ideal of the bodhisattva can kind of get, get sort of degraded into a sort of very individualist self-aggrandizement, a kind of heroic kind of idea. And you know, sort of it, it gets the base to something that, that reflects the kind of notion of the individual heroic quest. And so it loses something really important in that. Not only does it lose something very, very important, um, the really transformative power of bodhicitta, uh, but it also can tend to then feel like something of a heroic burden. You know, the idea that, you know, so on the one hand, the self-aggrandizing, but on the other hand, if we think that we've got to become a, bodhi, a bodhisattva, that we've got to give rise to the bodhicitta, suddenly it's like, wow, that's like an enormous burden. It's quite a big responsibility to have to carry. That kind of crushes people sometimes as well. It doesn't really support our growing. It can kind of crush us. You know? But important to, to bear in mind that you know, the bodhicitta isn't just about compassion. The bodhicitta is about uh, the union of compassion and emptiness. So, you know, this is really well articulated in the Pranaparamita professional wisdom literature. And there's a great passage in the, in the Diamond Sutra. Um, several passages like this, in fact, in the Diamond Sutra. Where the Buddha is talking, I think, to uh, Sariputra. And um, the Buddha says to Sariputra, uh, is, um, is the Ganges River vast and long? And uh, Sariputra will say, yeah, the, the Ganges River is it's really long. Yeah, it's a very long <coughs> river. Yeah, really long. All the way from 
you know, way up at the, the source all the way down to the mouth of the Ganges and out into the ocean. It's vast, yeah. And so the Buddha says, so, and, um, you know, in this vast and long Ganges River, are the, uh, are the grains of sand in that river uh, innumerable? And Sariputra says, um, yeah, I mean, it's such a big river, there's so many grains of sand, it's, they're, they're, they truly are innumerable, Lord. And uh, the Buddha says, so, um, are the sentient beings that the Bodhisattva vows to save more innumerable than all the grains of sand in the Ganges River, Sariputra? And Sariputra says, yes, Lord, indeed, you know, the, the beings that the Bodhisattva vows to save are even more innumerable than all the grains of sand in the Ganges River. And the Buddha says, and yet there are no sentient beings to save. And so the you know the Diamond Sutra just keeps on doing that over and over again. Right? It's sort of you know it's it's sort of this kind of refrain. And of course within that it's like this idea that there are no beings to save uh, also implies you know this, there being no beings that there's no Bodhisattva to save them either. That there's no Bodhisattva to save them. Which I think is fascinating because, you know, a lot of people do Vipassana-type practice, right? And, like, you know, even... So the same way that Bodhicitta gets appropriated to the self, realisation of emptiness also gets appropriated to the self. You know, it's like, where's the Bodhicitta going to arrive? Oh, in me. Well, where's that, right? If we're getting a real sense of emptiness. And the same thing is like, where's the realisation of emptiness going to arise? You know, I'm going, I'm going to realise emptiness. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get insight, all this kind of stuff, right? So it's curious how these um, these ideas of emptiness and bodhicitta, although intended to completely resolve this notion of a separate individual self, resolve these notions of cosmological dualism, uh, can in fact compound them in subtle ways, and they compound them in our practice. So there's a really useful antidote um, that um, was offered by uh, Sangharacitta. I think in about the 1990s, in fact. And he says, rather than us thinking about the bodhicitta being something that we give rise to in our experience, it's much, much more useful to think of the bodhicitta as something that arises between us, something that arises amidst people working together, arises between us. And the same is true of emptiness, in fact. In many ways, we might say it's much more useful, at least in terms of, un, of, of antidoting the kind of dangers of appropriation that I'm talking about, for us to think about emptiness and the realization of emptiness as something that arises between us. So it rises between us when the quality of our interaction is informed by an aspiration towards solidarity with all of life. It arises between us when we collaborate for the good of the whole. You might, um, well, let's say we could talk about uh, Sangha, perhaps as the matrix of the bodhicitta. You know, matrix being 
the kind of set of conditions that, that constitute a context or provides a system out of which something grows. Right? So Sangha, the matrix of the bodhicitta. So what's, I mean, some of you may not, this is again Buddhist word, isn't it? I don't want to take that for granted that you, you know what that means. So, um, you know, Sangha is one of the three jewels, the three most revered things in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, the Buddha is one of them, the ideal of enlightenment. The Dharma is the second jewel, which is the, the teaching and the path towards enlightenment. And the third, Sangha, is the spiritual community that we practice amidst and with. The spiritual community of those treading that path. So there's these three jewels, and actually this third jewel, the Sangha jewel, is such an important one to emphasize today. You know, given, as I said at the beginning, we're living at the, in the tail end of a period of systematic um, dismantling of uh, community relationships, of the kind of social fabric of a sort of, you know, what, what supports those more collective um, experience of, of, of our lives, uh, undermining that sense of solidarity. So often Buddhism today has Sangha as such a weak element. But if what I'm saying is true, that in fact that Sangha is the context, the matrix for the arising of the bodhicitta, you know, the matrix uh, for the arising of uh, really authentic experiences of emptiness and bodhicitta, because they happen between us rather than within an individual, then this loss of Sangha actually seriously undermines the transformative power of Dharma. I um, I didn't find I came to an appreciation of Sangha very easily in my own practice, actually. Uh, I used to live in London. I remember I remember one time, well, it was a time when, you know, I thought I was a very ardent, serious practitioner in a way. You know, I was living with my family. I had uh, small children. Um, and we lived in a, a, a couple of very small little housing association flats. And, you know, you hear the neighbours upstairs and all around you all the time. You know, probably quite a few of you have that kind of experience. And, uh, you know, even with my little family, it's like I'd... It was one of the places we lived in. I sort of managed to get up into the attic, you know, and sort of clear it out and find this little space under the eaves where, you know, I could just about sit up with a reasonable posture without sort of banging my head. And so I set up a little space there to keep my practice going. And this is the family life. And another place we moved to, we were lucky we had garages out the back of the flats. So, um, you know, it was full of junk and stuff. So I cleared some space amongst the boxes, just enough space to kind of sit there, with a little shrine on a cardboard box in front of me get up early before getting the kids up for school and sort of go out and go into my garage and pull the door behind me. Which must have looked pretty weird, you know, it's like this guy sort of disappearing into his little garage every morning. And on one occasion, actually, there were builders were in the flats and they banged on the door, you know, they could hear me chanting in there, you, know, you bloody weirdo kind of thing. It's not fun. So, you know, I was taking my practice quite seriously, solitary retreats, all that kind of stuff. And studying, you know, doing academic study at, at SOAS of Buddhism. And um, so I thought, you know, I took that quite seriously. But one day I was in, in Clissold Park, which is a park in North London, with a friend of mine, a man called Kulimitra. And uh, he was a bit of a mentor to me at the time. And as we, we were sitting, he said, uh, Harry, he said, which was my name before I was called became called Gihipati. He said, Harry, how, how, many, um, how many jewels are there? And I said, well, there's, there's three jewels. And, right? 
He said, yeah. Hmm. And um, do you think the Buddha just kind of rounded it up? <laughs> said, no, probably not. He said, yeah, right. So, so, what's with you? so what's with you then? It's like, you know, obviously the Buddha and the Dharma are like really strong commitments for you, but in terms of like you're going for refuge to the Sangha, really meaningfully, practically, you know, it's a bit thin, isn't it, really? And, and he was completely right, you know, he was completely right. Um, and it really went against a lot of, of my tendency, actually, to start to move more and more fully towards that. Um, and really find contexts where Sangha felt meaningful enough for me to really want to give myself to them as well. Because often we don't find Sangha pre-existing. You know, if we want to go to refuge to the Sangha jewel, very often we have to take the responsibility to create that Sangha with others. But it's in that creation of Sangha that we get the, mo- the richest experience of what Sangha is. So, Sangha as a matrix for the arising of the Bodhicitta, one of the things that I, I said was, you know, to, I, I called it sort of, you know, um, working together in solidarity with life, with this idea of, you know, collaborating for the good of the whole. Uh, I think there are times where people would come, come together as Buddhist practitioners and call that Sangha. But in fact, unless that Sangha, I think, um, has an intention which is bigger than its own self-perpetuation, you know, unless that's also rooted in this altruistic motivation, unless we come together as practitioners for the good of the whole, then actually it's not really Sangha still. Because that kind of Sangha will be the kind of Sangha that helps to support and perpetuate more individualistic conceptions of what our practice is about. So I'm going to um, change tack a little bit here because um, um, I'm going to I'm going to sort of use some material that comes from uh, some of the trainings that we that we run. Uh, you know, I mentioned this idea earlier of this 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 term sort of transformative collaboration, and I think I think effective sangha, you know, collaborating for the good of the whole, um, is this you know is embodied in this idea of transformative collaboration because transformative collaboration, uh, the transformation is of self and of society, okay. and when we're kind of exploring this theme of transformative collaboration which we could call as well, you know, Sangha is a matrix for the rising of the bodhicitta. Uh, we ask a simple question to explore, which is, well, why collaborate? Why collaborate? And uh, we, we explore five responses to that question. So why collaborate? So the five responses are um, because it offers a context for transformation and development, the first. Uh, secondly, uh, because it's a source of effectiveness and empowerment. Thirdly, because it's a means for embodying our values. Fourthly, because it actually honors interconnectedness. And fifthly, as a source of synergy and creativity. So I'm gonna go through those, those five. So first of all, collaboration as a context for transformation and development. Um, our personal transformation really so depends on relationships. 
so much depends on relationships. We really need others. I think you know when, when it's it's so important to acknowledge to ourselves that we really need others to change ourselves. Um, I mean, this this is this is really clearly expressed in 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 the Pali Canon, isn't it? With the with the the emphasis on Kalyana Mitrata, like the idea of spiritual friendship, and. Um, you know, you probably there's a bunch of you who know that, that bit where um, Ayananda says to the Buddha, he says, how wondrous, Lord, you know, spiritual friendship, Kalyana Mitrata is, is half of the spiritual life. And what does he, what's the Buddha say? No say not so. Say not so, yes, he always says that. <laughs> say not so what? It's all of it. It's the, the whole of the spiritual life, yeah, yeah. Great. So it's just so you know. It's so it, you know. It's like take, we take that really, really seriously. And that's not so. That's the same as we're saying. You know, in terms of like the bodhicitta arising between us, right? Cognizing emptiness, really. You know, awareness arising between us. The whole of the spiritual life, kalyana mitrata. Um, because we need the support, uh, and there's something in the recognition of the need of the support that's already a really important step in our own transformation, right, and acknowledgement of the, the need of that support. And also we need the challenge, it's not just support, we need the challenge. It's like when we come into a relationship with others, as we you know, know in so many ways in our lives, we get ourselves reflected back uh, in ways that we can't, aspects of ourselves that we can't see from our own side a lot of the time or very, very difficult to see from our own side a lot of the time. So often we've got you know, really well-established strategies to kind of avoid taking account of some aspects of who we are. So we get that reflected back, both through the kind of feedback that people give us, and, but also just in the sense of why isn't this working? You know, why isn't that working? And when you really want to come together with others, you know, that reflecting back of your limitations offers a really powerful motivation for a deeper reflection and the, the acquisition of deeper self-knowledge and self-understanding. So it's, you know, this sense of support and challenge. And this, you know, this quality of um, Kalyana Mitrata, the, the sort of spiritual friendship, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a very beautiful, it's a very beautiful ideal of coming together on the basis of, you know, what's, what's really good in us. You know, coming to, together on the basis of a deep, deep commitment to realise the best in ourselves and support the very best in those around us. And of course, our friendship a lot of the time falls short of that. You know, Aristotle's um, sort of three, he's got these three dimensions of friendship that he talks about. Um, so the first one is uh, friendship based on utility. You know, all too often our friendships are based on what we can get out of each other, right? And then um, the sort of the, ne the next sort of the slightly loftier version of uh, friendship based on utility is friendship based on on pleasure. That we kind of you know we 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 we, we find pleasure uh, in the friendship, but it's a kind of slightly hedonistic kind of notion. And then his third level of friendship, though, is friendship based on the good, which is very akin to the Buddhist idea of a kalyana mitra type. So we come together on the basis of the good. And it's a kind of quality of friendship that doesn't, you know, there might be kind of easy rapport, there might be the fact that you like each other, but actually in Kalyana Mitrata, you don't even have to really like each other. 
but you do have to share commitments, ethical commitments, practices, aspirations. So yeah, context for transformation and development, collaboration is where we come, mu we're, we're, we come much more intimately, closely connected with others, which gives us support, um, we can, and it also offers uh, the kind of challenges that will help us to grow. It's like in, in, collaborative, in collaborating with others, we, we often talk about these three dimensions of connection that are important in terms of healing, the more alienated uh, experiences of you know, contemporary life. We talk about you know, pe the need for, for people to connect with themselves, the need for people to connect with other people, and the need for people to connect with nature. And the first two of those, in collaborative endeavour, are really dealt with, you know, it's, a, it's an opportunity to connect with ourselves in the way I was just sort of articulating, but also an opportunity to really explore and learn what is it to really connect with others. And these kind of, you know, in that we can, we can through collaborative um, work, through collaborative projects, we find an opportunity to really mature into more fully interconnected individuals. You know, in collaboration, we don't we don't sort of lose our individuality. You know, as in, as in, uh, in collaboration, we sort of find in a healthy collaboration. We kind of you know, it's about um, you know, recognizing the differentiation, recognizing the diversity, rec diversity, recognizing the different qualities and things that we bring to that. And this idea of um, sort of growing into a sense of a mature uh, sense of an interconnected self is very often much much more useful than teachings about non-self or no-self. Because, you know, no-self, um, non-attachment, they're actually very, very advanced teachings, which a lot of the time we misinterpret to um, serve a kind of aversion to ourself, or that can lead us into a kind of disassociative state, we disassociate from ourselves. Um, this idea that uh, before we can really understand what non-attachment is, we have to learn to, to form healthy attachments. Until we can learn to form healthy attachments, non-attachment is a damaging concept. In collaborative work, in coming together on the basis of ideals and aspirations, we get opportunities to form healthy attachments because there's an ethical kind of relationship there where we can begin to take the risks to open up to each other in ways that often we don't have that opportunity. We live in a world where, of course, we defend ourselves in so many different ways. Um, so in this kind of these collaborative efforts, this going for the good of the whole together, we create a space where we can start to take risks, where we start to open up, where we can start to form healthy attachments and build you know, deep trust with others. On the basis of that, we become whole individuals, able to recognise and honour our interconnectedness. And in that, we find non-self. In that, we find non-attachment as a kind of a, a, a sort of a flowering of this learning to really connect. So, the second of these responses to why collaborate is um, collaboration is a source of effectiveness and empowerment. So we do aspire to go for the good of the whole. If we do aspire to be a benefit in the world, we want to see our action have actual impact. 
there's you know there's probably a few people around who kind of aspire as you know, bodhisattvas, and yet don't always find the way to give full expression of that in their lives. When we can give expression to it in 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 the the, the specifics of each relationship, right, of every encounter that we come into. But there's also something for me about if we really aspire to be a benefit, then let's think a little bit strategically about how we can do that best. And this comes back to that comment at the beginning, it's like how do we fix this stuff? We do it together. Because it's only when we work together that we can really expand our sphere of influence in the world. You know, many of us will have this enormous sense of, you know, a sort of a sphere of concern that's enormous. You know, climate change, loss of biodiversity, you know, global economic injustice, you know, it's, it's vast. And as individuals in relationship to that, it can feel deeply overwhelming. It's like, what can I do about that? Strategically, it's so important to, to ask first, who can I work with to do something about that? Because through coordinated effort, we become so much more effective. You know? By sort of beginning to, to work in teams, by beginning to, to, to establish organisations and groups and institutions that can respond, we gain enormous, enormous influence. So collaboration is a real key to effectiveness and, and empowerment. It's in collaboration that we begin to re-inhabit um, the space, the terrain that's been depopulated during these 30-odd years of neoliberalism. Um, there's, you know, the, the, you, you, some of you probably read um, texts like uh, Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, um, sociological studies that kind of show the extent to which trust is broken down in our societies, the extent to, uh, the extent to which we're suffering what, what uh, he would call a social recession. You know, people disengaging from, from civil society, from community projects and so on, and so atomization. That, that phenomenon, it leaves us often in a situation where we've got this kind of uh, a balance of power, all in the hands of these sort of overarching institutions, whether it's the state at a national level, uh, perhaps even more importantly, at sort of a transnational level, at sort of large uncountable institutions, corporations and so on, who have such enormous influence in shaping our futures. Um, and between that tier and ourselves as individuals down here, there's an enormous gap. And that, that space has gradually, gradually been being depopulated. To move from sort of, you know, us as individuals, to have an influence, right, to sort of gain influence, to, to have more of an impact, we've got to re-inhabit that space. And that involves us in seeding and creating more opportunities for people to work and collaborate together. So collaboration is, is in that sense, we're reoccupying that space. When we reoccupy that space, uh, we begin to help to antidote the experience that many people have of um, what Mark Fisher calls reflexive impotence. So that this, this idea of reflexive impotence suggests that we live at a time where we're so aware, there's so much information about what's going on. Uh, you know, to the extent that we're overloaded by it. But that reflexive awareness also uh, has a sense that, and yet we can do nothing about it. We want to turn reflexive impotence into a reflective potency, collaboration, finding the people we can work with and committing to work with them 
is a really key strategic step. And actually, when we start to open, when we start to do that, we create channels for energy. You know, often people talk about. I think here there's going to be like a grief ritual, uh, maybe on Saturday, perhaps it is. Right? Um, people talk a lot about the importance of reconnecting with our deeper emotional response to the crises we're facing. And grief is a part of that. So is anger is a part of that sense of injustice, the sort of rage of these things. But so often we can't allow ourselves to feel the energy in that because we've got nowhere for it to go. It's not just that we're, 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 we're you know, it's not just our relationship to our own emotional selves that's at stake. It's also that, that we have a sense that there's nowhere for that energy to go. We can't see pathways of action. So this working together, this reoccupying, the re-inhabiting that space that I was talking about between the atomized individual and his overarching institutions creates channels where that energy can flow so we can start to feel ourselves more strongly and we can begin to harness that energy. We can afford to experience the rage because there's a way that we can direct and use it. So the third way we answer this question, why collaborate? is um, by talking about collaboration as an opportunity or the, the way in which we can embody our values most fully. One way is to see when we work together collaboratively for the good of the whole, we're involved in a kind of direct resistance against the values of the kind of system that we're seeking to change. That there's a direct resistance in our coming together in that way in our coming together for the good of the whole we um, we kind of refuse the values of atomization and, and individualism so we directly we directly um, resist them and we start to embody our values by creating cultures of care and cultures of compassion between us right? in, the, in those projects in those efforts themselves and this is really important, so important not to undervalue the importance of that embodiment. Um, there's some great work by Audre Lorde, who's a um, black feminist writer who talks a lot about the, the radical political implications of care and sort of reclaiming the radical nature of care and of kindness. And when we work together with these shared values, we can start to create that kind of culture. So we embody those values. When we start to work together and we start to embody those values, we also begin to strengthen our capacity to aspire towards greater change in the world around us as well. One of the things that undermines our capacity to make a difference is our loss of faith and confidence in ourselves. When we live in, in social settings that keep pushing us towards individualism, keep pushing us towards atomization, keep pushing us towards you know, self-preoccupation for security and you know, basic, meeting our basic needs, um, we become those people. And we start to think that that's who we are, but of course it's not who we are, that's just an aspect of ourselves that is strengthened because of the social conditions. When we collaborate together, we create different kinds of relationships, we allow ourselves to become different kinds of people. We sort of escape from the, the hegemony of the sort of neoliberal capitalist idea 
of the, the sort of the, the atomized individual. We sort of, we, we, we liberate our capacity to imagine ourselves and others as different kinds of beings. Which is so, so important. And when we start to do that together, we not only inspire an increasing and growing confidence in ourselves, but also we begin to be able to inspire others that it's possible for them too. And the reason collaboration is such an important um, basis for embodying values is because frankly you can't embody the value of solidarity on your own. There are values that we can't embody alone. So the fourth response why collaborate is this idea of it honouring connection or honouring interconnectedness. So in a sense collaborating, engaging in collaborative efforts for the benefit, for the, for the good of the whole, we might say is a way of aligning ourselves with reality as a practice, as a way of aligning ourselves with reality. When we, uh, when we work with others in that way, we, um, we find a, a very different conception uh, of agency begins to arise. You know, we start to, to recognise that it's, you know, things don't arise because of our own effort, they arise because of the efforts of, of all of us together. So we get a very different conception of agency, a sort of complexifying of the conception of agency. Um, we get with that a real sense of, a growing sense of humility. And when we're involved in collaborative efforts, um, we're much more likely to be able to let go of the idea that I did that and be freed into this greater idea that this is something that arised you know, from our combined efforts that we did together. And that humility is, is, is so useful in terms of like the deconstructing of the sense of the separate self. That, that sense of humility is really vital. So complexifying a sense of agency. When we work in collaborative contexts, we are, I think, learning to um, let go of the conceit of control. You know, the individual self, the kind of the deluded, uh, self-grasping uh, individual. Uh, often is uh, trying to control the world around, and we have this. You know, sometimes we go. You know, we feel like we can't control it, and we're kind of, we're we're, we're sort of we fall apart because of that. Okay? And that sense of falling apart, that pain, is just when we recognise that actually we can't control things. And when we collaborate, it's like we we work in a way which already takes that as foundation. We assume it's not about control, but about something else that kind of arises when we all when we all come together. So we bring greater greater um, humility and more of a sense of the sort of the non-linear way in which things arise in the world as well. I think when we when we work in collaborative contexts, we and we we start to develop more of this humility, um, more of a sense of the non the non-linear conditioned processes that are at work in the world, amongst us in the world generally, uh, we're more able to, to embrace complexity. So there's, a, there's this great uh, phrase that I like that says, um, it's, not that, it's not that ecosystems are more complex than you think they are, 
is that they're more complex than you can think. And it's so important to take that on board. You know? And it's not just ecosystems, it's like what's going on in this room. Right? It's what's going on you know, in, our, in our hearts, is what's going on yeah, in so many ways. So collaboration actually gives an opportunity to really kind of sort of move more and more towards that. How can I work with others where my agency is an influential and important part of what's going on, and yet I can let go of the outcomes so that something bigger can sort of come into that. Um, that shift from control is really important, I think, in terms as a sort of a value. You know, at the beginning I was saying this idea of together is the kind of the basic answer to many of these problems. In doing that, we're, we're talking about a shift in values, from values of control to values of collaboration. So lastly, the, um, you know, why collaborate? We've got this, uh, this idea of collaboration as the matrix of synergy and creativity. So in that, we get, you know, the very simple idea, right, you know, that we all, we all hear about of, um, you know, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah? And people often say, but what's that really mean? You know, what's it really mean? So I, 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 I do this as a way of kind of indicating it. So I draw that and I say, there you go, that's, that's the, you see that? A couple of dots and a curve and a, and a circle, right? And I draw them again. So, same parts. Yeah. So there's the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? It's very simple, isn't it? It's like really, really simple. It's like, so, it's really simple, but actually really mysterious, isn't it? It's like, there we go, there's a smiley face, right? We, we all get that, don't we? It's really obvious, right? But where is that smiley face, right? It's not in the parts, you know, we take the parts, there's no smiley face here anymore, right? So this is about relationships. You know, relationships between these parts is where the face emerges. But it's not just in the relationship between the parts, it's also the relationship between this and the way that we cognize this. It's between, you know, part of the, part of the, part of the arising of this face are the semiotic conventions that we're all familiar with as well, right? All of that is kind of there and the, the emergence of this face arises out of all these incredibly complex conditions. And, um, you know, this brings us back in a way to, to um, the idea of, you know, Sangha as a matrix for arising in the bodhicitta. The bodhicitta arising between us isn't, isn't kind of um, not connected to the efforts and the agency and the effort of each individual. It's totally connected to that. It completely depends on that. It completely depends on the aspiration and the effort. Um, but in it rising between us, it's, it's, um, it's something that emerges out of our efforts, but goes beyond them. It goes completely beyond them. So there's something quite mysterious in that, you know, something mysterious in the face if we care to actually pay attention to what's going on. Something even more deeply mysterious in how is it the bodhicitta kind of arises between us? But of course, you know, right at the really, you know, one of the things that's also at the heart of Mahayana, which is, you know, not just compassion, not just emptiness, but it's faith. Faith. Which is 
about a deeper quality of receptivity and humility that we're not going to clear up the mystery. We're never going to clear up the mystery, but we can, between us, allow the mystery to become clearer. So, okay, so I'm going to wrap up. So, you know, I was asking, you know, why collaborate? And I said, you know, it's a transformative, a context for transformation and development, really crucial in that, that it's um, a means of effectiveness and empowerment. If we really want to have an impact, we're going to have to work together right, to be strategic about that. It's the only way we can embody certain values, some of the key values of our times. And the only way we'll embody them. Uh, that actually aligns with reality and it honours interconnectedness. And we discover a lot about reality in attempting to align with it in that way. And it's as, as, as the basis and matrix for synergy and creativity, maybe in fact, you know, the matrix for the arising of the bodhicitta. And I said as well that um, on Sunday, I'm going to give another talk, um, which is exploring, well, that's great, but it's still not easy. <laughs> a lot of good reasons to collaborate there, but it's still not easy. So on Sunday, I'm going to be talking a bit about what are the conditions that can help us to be transformative groups, you know, to come together uh, transformatively for, for the good of the whole. You know, what are the conditions that do that? What are some of the, the balances and tensions that exist in our relationships when we try to achieve that? So um, maybe I see some of you then as well. Thank you.